Lord, we do need you. And we realize that this is a sensitive topic, but one that we need to hear and one that we need your perspective on, Lord. I pray that we wouldn't let the media, our friends, really the, the, the world at large shape and define the way we think about marriage, about family, about sexuality, about singleness, but rather we would let the word of God be the primary driving force in these areas. Lord, would you help us today? Hide us, hide me behind the cross. Let the words of your scripture speak loudly and plainly to your people. Lord, we lift up Pastor Ra this morning as he is preaching at Image Church. I pray you would fill him with the spirit, help him to be an encouragement to that dear congregation. Lord, we need you. In Christ we pray, amen. And they all lived... Okay, you can do better. And they all lived... This traditional fairy tale ending appears in some form as early as 1300 AD. In most cases, and they all lived happily ever after, occurs where? At the conclusion of the story, where the plot tension is resolved and the main characters end up falling in love. So in Cinderella, it ends with Cinderella escaping her wicked stepmother and marrying the prince. And in Sleeping Beauty, it concludes with the witch being vanquished and Sleeping Beauty being revived with true love's kiss. But there's one problem with happily ever after. And it's really this. It, while, it's completely it, while it's not completely untrue, it's overly simplistic, isn't it? Life does not gen generally work in this idea of happily ever after. This has led some authors to alter happily ever after. So Stephen King, the famous fairy tale writer, he concludes the eyes of the dragon with the far more sensible, there were good days and bad days. Makes you feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Isn't that just a wonderful conclusion to the story? Or the original Arabic version of Arabian Nights, you know, Aladdin is out right now, kind of based on that story. It ends with this in the original. And they all lived happily until there came to them the one who destroys all happiness. So dark, so dark. And most ironically of all is the late film critic Roger Ebert. How many of you remember Roger Ebert, Siskel and Ebert, the thumbs up, thumbs down? Here's what Ebert wrote about the idea of happily ever after. Los Angeles is leveled by multiple tornadoes. New York is buried under ice and snow, and the United Kingdom is flash frozen, and lots of the northern hemisphere is wiped out for good measure. Thank God that Jack, Sam, Laura, and Jason survived. The idea is simply this. Happily ever after, though it's not a complete fairy tale, in one sense it's a simplistic view of reality. So is it wrong to desire your own personal happily ever after? No, not at all. It's just unrealistic to think that a romantic relationship will make your life practically perfect in every way, which is unfortunately how many in our culture think. So you walk down the news aisle or look at your news feed or read the tabloids and celebrities run from marriage to marriage to marriage to marriage again, hoping to find one who will make them truly happy. Singles feel a nagging sense of worthlessness in their gut until they find their soulmate. 
Married couples wondered why this thing called love is so hard and why does it not seem to work out the way that I planned it? Simply having a ring on your finger or a loving spouse in your home does not mean that everything going forward will be rainbows and unicorns or rainbow puking unicorns if you prefer. It's neither of those things. Don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand me. Marriage is fantastic, but it's demanding. Or to put it in a very like pithy way, marriage is both wonderful and work. It's both of those things. It's not just wonderful. It's not just work. It is wonderful and work. It is this idea that the Apostle Paul tackles in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Apparently in Corinth, there were some significant misconceptions about marriage running rampant. Seems that some of the believers were thinking that Christians shouldn't marry at all and others didn't recognize what marriage would demand of them. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul seeks to disabuse the Corinthians of their erroneous beliefs and clearly lay out for them the price tag of that wedding bed. Which leads me to my point this morning. It's simply this. We must have a realistic view of marriage. Now, you might be listening to me and, and thinking, man, does this guy have a bad marriage? No, not at all. But if you read the text, this text, Paul is not calling us to kind of this rose-colored glasses view of marriage. He's not giving us this dewy-eyed perception that we're supposed to have. He's saying, listen, I endorse marriage. Marriage is good. And if you read the whole Bible, there's all kinds of wonderful things about marriage. But in this passage in particular, Paul is basically saying to us, be realistic because marriage will cost you something. We must have a realistic view of marriage or to put it another way, our marriage needs to be informed primarily by the scripture, not by our culture or even our experience. We should not think of marriage as the old ball and chain nor should we think of marriage as our savior. It is neither of those things. So whether you are married today or hope to be married one day or content in your state of singleness, let's all strive to clearly see that marital love is a gift to be celebrated and a grace to be cultivated. Let me say that again. Marital love is a gift to be celebrated. Yay for marriage! And a grace to be cultivated. That is, you better work at it. It comes with a price tag. It comes with a cost. It's just not automatic. This ring did nothing to change me. It changed the legal status of mine and Tristan's relationship, but it is not transformation by wearing jewelry. Marriage is something that God uses to transform us, to change us, but marriage itself, if we do not put in the work, if we are not willing to pay the price, will not be a blessing. It will in some ways be a curse and a difficulty for us. So what specifically is demanded of those who enter into the covenant of marriage? It's this question that I think Paul addresses directly here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So here's the heading, if you're taking notes, is simply this, the cost of saying... I do. When you say I do, what are you saying? What are you giving up? What does it cost you when you say I do? Number one, it will cost you rights over your body. This chapter opens with Paul quoting something that apparently at least some of the Corinthian believers were believing. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 7. I don't think Paul believed this, but I think this is what the Corinthians were saying. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote me, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. 
It seems that someone in Corinth was teaching that in some way it was more godly for the Corinthians believers to refrain from sexual relations altogether. That is even married people. Like they're saying it's good for you not to have sex at all. Paul corrects this view. Verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. In other words, Paul clearly endorses. What is he endorsing here? Let's just say this very plainly. Paul clearly endorses intimacy in the context of marriage. In fact, he sees it as an appropriate deterrent to immoral behavior. In other words, one way to fight against sin is to have sex with your spouse. That's what Paul is saying. I mean, let's just put it bluntly. One way to fight against temptation to lust and immorality is to have sex in the context of marriage. And I say one way because that's not the only way. And we'll get to a little bit more of that in a minute. Then Paul goes an even further step. Look at verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. He, here the Apostle Paul not only says that sexual intimacy is the right of a married individual, but the body of your spouse is in one sense under your command. I mean, that is pretty sweepy language. Like he is saying, if you are married, you have the right to expect sexual intimacy from your spouse. That's what he says there. Then he goes a step further and says, oh, and by the way, wife, your husband's body is yours to command. And husband, your wife's body is yours to command. Your body is not in one sense your own once you become married. Then Paul's, Paul fills out this concept with a very practical application. Just look really carefully. Paul's getting like really brass tacks here. Do not deprive one another. So he's saying don't, don't withhold sex from one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So the expect, expectation, and I, I'm not even have to like extrapolate that. It's just what the text says, right? So the expectation is that married couples will be experiencing, now follow these adjectives, consistent, willing, reciprocal sexual intimacy. Let me say those adjectives again. You will be experiencing consistent, willing, reciprocal sexual intimacy. And let me say this very kindly, not underestimating folks that have sexual difficulties in here or temptations or things. And, and really, listen, by the way, in audience aside, I know that many of us do, many, many of us do. This is one of the more common things that you talk about when you're doing counseling and when you're working through with marriage couples. It is not, if, if you're like, man, we struggle with sex, don't think you're weird. That's really normal. If you struggle with sex, you're not weird. You're normal because couples do this. I mean, I've been around the block enough to know that couples struggle in this area, not just because of the mechanics of it. Uh, it's not usually a body parts issue. It's usually an intimacy issue and you need to work through those things. And we're going to help to do that this morning because what does sex do? It makes you very vulnerable. You're naked for Pete's sakes. 
Like you're exposed. You're opening yourself up to somebody else. And so that can be a very revealing, a very challenging thing for people to experience. Not every sexual encounter is like in the movies. In fact, very few of them are like in the movies. Like you're not knocking over kitchens and things like that, you know. It's just unrealistic perception. And if you've been married, you know that is the reality. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But couples should be experiencing willing, consistent, reciprocal intimacy. And let me say this super kindly. Anything less is outside of the biblical ideal. Do you hear that? Like anything less than that is outside of the biblical ideal. So let's draw up some implications. Let's get really practical. Let me make this statement. It is ungodly. This is a generalism. It is ungodly to purposefully withhold sex from your spouse. Oftentimes in a marriage, one spouse has a more frequent desire for sex than the other partner. Right? Okay, come on. Right? Yes, it's true. And generally we think it's men want sex more than their spouses. But listen, if you're a woman and you want spouse sex more than your husband, 20% of women, that's the reality. So it's not really an outlier even. It's 80-20. It's so, but generally in every marriage, one spouse usually wants sex more than the other partner. There can be a very real temptation for the partner with a lower drive to withhold sex as a form of punishment to get back at their spouse or a tool for manipulation to get their way. Neither of these are biblically appropriate. According to verse five, there are conditions that must be met for spouses to withhold from one another. Did you catch that? Like he says, don't deprive, don't deprive yourselves of one another except for, and what are those conditions? One, a limited time. Two, it is mutually agreed upon. And three, it is for the purpose of prayer. FYI, when you say, I have a headache, you generally don't mean, I just want to seek the Lord in prayer. That's not generally what you're talking about, right? When it's like negative 154 degrees in the bedroom, you know, frigidity. It's not because you're like, you know, I just need to spend time studying my word. Like that's generally not what's happening. So, if those conditions are not met, if you're not doing it mutually, if it's not for a limited time, if it's not for the purpose of prayer, the principle is simply this. Sex is not a weapon. Say that with me. Sex is not a... You don't use sex or withhold sex to hurt your spouse. That's the principle. Sex is not a weapon. Now, those of you with a more frequent desire are hearing this and thinking, all right now, amen. I knew the Lord was on my side on this one. I knew the Bible was teaching me that I was right on this particular matter. But hold up. Those of you with less frequent desire might be saying, oh my, that sounds like a lot of work. He or she is over here saying, amen. And I'm over here saying, oh me. What are we supposed to do with that? Well, 
Whatever the category you find yourself in, let me remind you of a very important concept. Listen to this concept very carefully. Sex is both the cause and effect of intimacy. Okay? Sex is both the cause and the effect of intimacy. Here's what I mean by that. For those of you that are, that are well, let, let, me, let me use an analogy. I, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here. Let me use an analogy. Um, for some of you, your desire for sex is more like a microwave. That is, you just hit the start button and you are at full power. You're ready to go. Like it's just, you know, you, you don't have to warm the microwave up. You just walk over and press, you know, 30 seconds. Boom, you're good to go. You're ready to go. For others, it is much more like an oven. That is, you need a preheating period, if you will. Now, now listen. So if you are like a microwave, you need to remember that sex is the effect of intimacy. That is, just because you're ready to go doesn't mean that your spouse is. He or she may need some time to warm up. So be understanding of that reality. On the other hand, for those of you that are ovens, remember sex is also the cause of intimacy. That is, engaging sexually with your spouse may help you fire up the burners a little more quickly. Okay, do you understand what I'm saying there? It's both the effect, it, it leads to intimacy, and it's the cause. It, it causes intimacy. So there needs to be a very mutual understanding of where you're at. Is your desire higher? Is your desire lower? Where do I need to compromise on this so that I'm coming together and not depriving my spouse or not using sex as a weapon, but using sex as an expression of and a means to intimacy in the context of marriage, okay? Two, second implication of this. Godly sex is an act of servanthood. Hear that again. Godly sex is an act of servanthood. First of all, some of you are saying, godly sex? Like there is such a thing as godly sex. Yes, yes. And just because you got a ring on your finger doesn't mean you're having godly sex, by the way. Just because it's sanctioned by the state and even sanctioned by the Bible in terms of its legitimate marriage bed doesn't mean that you are behaving in a godly way in the bedroom. Notice Paul's emphasis on mutuality here in the passage. So while your spouse's body is under your authority, that's what he says there. You know, the, the, the body of the husband does not, is not under her, I'm sorry. The body of the husband is under the authority of the wife and the body of the wife is under the authority of the husband. Notice that it's both at the same time. So husbands, while yes, while yes, if you're approaching your wife sexually, her body, according to the word of God, is under your authority. At the very same time, in the very same moment, whose, whose authority is your body under? Hers. You see what I'm saying there? Like, it's not like it's a one-way street there. It's a two-way street. You belong to one another in one sense. And so that means there needs to be a ton of mutuality in the way that you're thinking, a ton of sensitivity, 
a lot of compassion and consideration that is going into the sexual act. Not just you trying to get what you want. That is not an act of servanthood. That is an act of self-indulgence. And that is an ungodly approach to sexuality. Um, so the, the marriage bed should be, to put it simply, a place of self-sacrifice, self not self-indulgence. I mean, does that, does that describe the way you approach your spouse, married couple? Are you approaching with a heart of self-sacrifice or a heart of self-indulgence? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you don't get pleasure out of the equation. I'm not saying that you shouldn't expect or desire pleasure. That's, that's part of who we are as human beings. But I am saying, what is your approach? Are you more concerned about your spouse in that moment or more concerned about you? The marriage bed ought to be a place of self-sacrifice. Let me set aside myself for my wife. Let me set aside myself for my husband. Not a place of self-indulgence. Let me grab what I want. Let me get what I want out of this experience rather than thinking about my spouse. The question I would pose to all the married individuals this morning is simply this. Are you seeking to serve your spouse through sex? I mean, is that vocabulary? Is that language that you have? Or to push it even further, are you learning your spouse's preferences? Are you preparing for sexual intimacy? Spiritually, mentally, even physical time and space, all of those things. Do you take a shower? I mean, all of these things are an act of service to your spouse where you're like, I'm not just thinking about get all I can, but rather how can I serve my spouse? This is grown up, right? Okay, all right. Yeah. <laughs> the marriage bed is a place of servanthood, not of self-indulgence. The world screams, that sex is fundamentally about my pleasure. I mean, that's why pornography exists, right? Because what does is, what is pornography do? It makes it anonymous and it removes any requirement on my behalf to serve anybody else. It's just all about me. And that's what the world screams that sex is. It's about you. It's about your desire. It's about your privileges. But listen to this very carefully. Sex is for physical satisfaction. Yes. But spiritual sanctification. That's what sex is for. Listen, God didn't just build sex in marriage to give you pleasure. He did. He did. God didn't just give you this physical act so that you would enjoy yourself. He did, but he gave you this physical act so he could grow you spiritually. You know why it's hard sometimes? Because God wants you to grow. God wants you to grow through that. God wants you to be vulnerable with your spouse. Man, I didn't like that. Or I did like that. Or could you do that? Or what, what pleases you? All of a sudden, there's this idea of vulnerability and you're like, oh my word, I'm just like laying myself bare before someone else. I don't like the way my body looks. Oh, I got to deal with that. I got to come to my spouse with that. All of these things, God gave you sex, not just to please yourself, but to grow you in your walk with him. Sex is a insanely spiritual thing. And what the world has tried to do is pull apart the spirituality from sex. Sex without marriage, sex without consequence, sex without partners for Pete's sakes. 
It has tried to pull that apart and it ruins in one sense or corrupts at the very least the gift that God intended to give us. God wants you to learn to walk with him in the marriage bed. It is an undefiled place. Meaning whatever happens in that bed, God means to purify, to grow you, to use in your life, to make you more like Jesus. In a sense, godly sex is a call. Every time you approach your spouse sexually, it is a call to die to selfishness and grow in selflessness. Every time. It's like, I'm just going to die to myself here. I want to set aside my selfishness. Lord, I need to be more like Jesus, even in my marital bed. Lord, I need to turn away from the world's perceptions of this and see this human being made in your image who you've given me to care for and cherish and make this more about me serving them than about them serving me. That's radical. By the way, that's Christian. Sex is not like outside of the sphere of Christianity. It's part of Christianity. It's part of how you grow in your relationship with Christ. There is a Christian view of sex and it doesn't mean just don't have it till you're married. There's more to it than that. Number two. What do you give up when you say I do? You give up autonomy in your plans. Autonomy in your plans. What does autonomy mean? It means the right to call the shots, being in charge. Uh, Paul then turns his attention to this. Look at verse six. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. So, so this is Paul just kind of talking. Like, here's my preference. This is not thus saith the Lord, but here's my preference. I wish that all were as myself am. Then he clarifies what he means. Look down at verse eight. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. So Paul's personal preference was that those who were unmarried just remain single. So what's his rationale for this? Fortunately, we don't have to speculate. Skip down to verse number 12 and Paul tells us exactly what he's thinking. I want you to be free from anxieties. I'm sorry, verse 32. Verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. In other words, here's a synopsis of what Paul is saying there. When a person gets married, they're no longer autonomous. They don't just do what they want. All their plans, all their decision-making, another person is to be considered. On the other hand, those who are single can be undivided in their devotion to God. Though Paul makes it clear that it is not sinful to either marry or remain single. None of these is like a more godly position. Singleness is not ungodly. Marriage is not ungodly. But what Paul makes plain is this. Both marriage and singleness come with unique advantages and disadvantages. There are unique advantages and disadvantages to being single. There are unique advantages and disadvantages to being married. This is important for a couple reasons. First, let me speak to the singles for a moment. If you are single, if you are unmarried, you are not in some intrinsically inferior position. Man, hear that. Will you hear that? If you are not married, you are not in some intrinsically inferior position. 
If you desire marriage, it may be difficult at times to remember, but there are actual advantages to your singleness. You have advantages in your singleness that married couples do not have. What is more, if, if you have trusted in the Lord and you are unmarried at this point, it is because he wants to meet you, not in spite of your singleness, but through your singleness. Listen, singles, if you're not married right now, it's because God has work to do in your life while you are single through your singleness, not in spite of your singleness. There are certain things that God can and will do through singleness that he doesn't do through marriage. And there are certain things that God can and will do through marriage that he doesn't do through singleness. You tracking with me here? Both of them are not, neither of them are the perfect state. There's no perfectly, happily ever after. A romantic relationship doesn't just make you a different person. It is a means through which God will transform you, but that doesn't mean that God can't transform you in the midst of your singleness. In fact, that's exactly Paul's point. There's an advantage to being single, and he's like, hey, if you're single right now, I want you to strongly consider staying that way because there's some unique advantages to that. With me? So those of you that are single, you're not inferior. It's not because you're a loser. Now, you may desire marriage, and that's great. And you should pursue that. If the Lord puts that in your heart, that's fantastic. But don't throw away your singleness or think because you're single that it's not a valuable season in your life. Second, if you are married, <laughs> maybe this seems like the restatement of the obvious, but I, I need to say it just very plainly. If you are married, you need to consider your spouse. Just, just hear that. You must allow your spouse's preferences and desires to shape your plans and your decisions. You are not simply roommates living kind of two independent trajectories of life. No, you are husband and wife with responsibility to and for one another. And when you get married, when you put that ring on your finger, it means you're making a covenant to start forming a we, not a he and she, okay? That's what marriage is. God is saying, hey, Paul's saying, there's advantages to singleness because you don't have to worry about your spouse. What's the, what's the reverse of that? When you get married, you have to worry about what? This is part and parcel of it. Like, you can't behave like you're single anymore. You can't because you're not. And you have responsibility for that person. You set aside autonomy when you get married. Um... One thing that we try to teach our kids at the McCammock Homestead is that it is far more considerate and respectful to ask rather than tell, right? You know what I'm talking about here? So instead of saying to their mom, I'm going outside to play, mother. It's better to say, what? Can I go outside and play, sweet mommy? <laughs> or instead of saying, pass the potatoes, it's better to say, would you pass the potatoes? Why? Because you're asking, you're, you're inviting someone into the decision-making process. You're kind of putting an asterisk at the end of your statement saying, unless you would like something different. I want to consider you in this equation. In a sense, when you get married, you should move from a posture of telling to asking. Instead of saying, I'm buying a new car with my tax return. It's how do you think we should use our tax return, honey? Or instead of saying, I want tacos for dinner, which I always do, it becomes, what would you like for dinner? Would tacos be all right for dinner? 
Do you, do you see what I'm saying there? The posture of your relationship begins to change. And instead of telling, you're asking, is your marriage building a culture of his life and her life or our life? Which one is it? Are you building a culture of I do my thing, you do your thing, and then we happen to be friends with benefits? You need to begin to worry, as Paul says, his own language, be anxious about how you should please your spouse. That means a death to autonomy in your relationships. You say, man, that's going to be cumbersome. You betcha. Man, that's going to slow me down. You better believe it. But that's God's will for your life. When you say I do, you are saying we. You belong to me. I belong to you. We are a picture of Christ in the church. We are in this together and our lives need to be fashioned together. And let me say, let me say a word, just a kind of a pastoral word. Um, in America, the age of marriage, if you've noticed over the last several decades have crept further and further back, right? Now, I'm not saying that's good, bad, or indifferent, but, but here's what I do want you to realize. As that happens in our culture, it gets harder to build we. So we gotta fight against this temptation, why? Because if you're getting married at 35, 40 or whatever, and that's not wrong, it's not bad. God has called you that, that's fantastic. You've already had a lot of adult life. And so you fashioned your own trajectories. So if that's you, if you've already been out on your own for a little while, realize this is gonna be a challenge for you. You're not addressing the adult world the first time, like just out of college or just out of high school or whatever it was back in the day. Now we have to fight to say, man, we gotta have a lot of conversations about our life together, not your life and live these kind of independent, never touching grids where we just sleep together. Because God wants to shape you through marriage. God wants to shape you through marriage and have you be considerate and compassionate and including of one another in your plans, in your decisions, in everything that you do. When you get married, you have to worry about or be anxious about your spouse. Not in an ungodly way, but in a healthy way. Like this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And I care about this person and I value their input and I want to hear from them. And I want it to be our life, not just dragging her along or dragging him along with what I'm doing in my life. So the cost of I do is death to living as autonomous individuals. Number three. Third cost of I do, it is allegiance to your vows. Look at verse number 10. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Then Paul goes further, verse 12. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Now, I'm not gonna unpack all the implications of this, but I wanna make some broad statements about what I think this passage is talking about. Even in very difficult situations, that's what this passage is talking about. Is this a difficult situation that's, that Paul is referring to? Yeah. I mean, you're even unmarried to an unbeliever. Even in very difficult situations, married believers should do everything in their power to keep their vows. To put it simply, marriage is meant to be permanent. Now, I do not think that this passage or the whole of scripture categorically forbids separation or divorce. That's not what I'm saying. So don't run off into what if, 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 okay? What I'm talking about here is the general principle of the scripture 
that Paul here is talking about difficult situations. He's not talking about abuse. He's not talking about like, you know, something crazy like murder or something where somebody is about to lose their life or something like that. That's not what he's talking about. But he's saying even in difficult situations, there are certainly, I'm sorry, believe the Bible's teaching on divorce is a far cry from the cavalier attitude so present in our society. Right? How do people think about marriage today? It's, it's, it's almost like a throwaway thing. We may or may not stick it out. I don't know. It could work. It could not. Not a big deal. Take, take Bruno Mars 2011 chart topper, Marry You, right? Everybody know that? We could probably sing this together. Because it's a beautiful night and what? We're looking for something dumb to do, actually. Yes. See? See, you've been brainwashed, Michaela. Yeah. <laughs> We're looking for something dumb to do. Hey, baby, I think I... You guys are so ungodly. I'm just kidding. Yeah, right. <laughs> I think I want to marry you. Is it the look in your eyes or is it this dancing juice? Who cares, baby? I think I want to marry you. Oh, I'll go get a ring. Let the choir bell sing like ooh, 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 ooh. <laughs> So what you want to do, ooh, 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 ooh. Let's just run, get girl. Now here's where we get to the, the real meat of it. If you wake up and you want to break up, that's cool. I won't blame you. It was fun, girl. I mean, I think that typifies the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. It's fun. No hard feelings or a lot of hard feelings. Let's get an attorney and break our stuff up. But no big deal. Diver divorce is just kind of an option on the table. Just kind of at the beginning, you just know that if you don't behave yourself, I'm out. Now, again, don't hear me to say that there are no situations where it is wise or godly for separation or divorce to occur. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is we cannot be or have this cavalier attitude towards marriage that we just have an escape clause whenever we want it. We need to be willing to say, man, even when the going gets tough, what marriage costs me is for richer or for poorer, for better or for worse, till death do us part. Like, I'm in here. I'm hanging into this thing. Now if, the, now, if you've experienced divorce in the past, this is not meant to condemn, right? But it's meant to let's, let's, let's move towards a better future. Let's get under the Bible's thinking on these areas and say, okay, how can my future be different if I get myself in submission to the word of God? I think a much better sentiment is by the much less popular Warren Barfield. Uh, I think he hits the mark a lot better than Mr. Mars. Love is not a fight. He says this, love is not a place to come and go as we please. It's a house we enter in and then commit to never leave. So lock the door behind you and throw away the key. We'll work it out together. Let it bring us to our knees. Love is a shelter in a raging storm. Love is a peace in the middle of a war. And if we try to leave, may God send angels to guard the door. Love is not a fight, but it's something worth fighting for. Well, I do not want in any way to devalue the importance of romance and emotion in marriage relationship. I don't want to devalue that. That is important stuff. What I do want to say is that in a godly marriage, commitment to your spouse should be greater than feelings for your spouse. Guys, 
the feelings will not always be there. If you don't have any feelings at any point um, and you're moving towards marriage, maybe that's not the person, right? But the feelings will not always be at this fever pitch, but your commitment should. That's what the promise is for. I don't need a promise to stay married to my spouse when she does everything that I want her to do. I need the promise, I need the commitment, I need the word of God to remind me that I am committed to my spouse when things are hard. And sometimes they get hard. Sometimes you will be at odds with one another. That's normal. But remember, God wants to do something in and through you through this marriage relationship. So when you say, I do, you are saying, this will cost me total allegiance to my vows. I'm committed. I'm committed to this relationship. I'm committed to working through my junk. I'm committed to not going to bed angry. I'm committed to growing in my walk with Jesus. I'm committed into helping you grow in your walk with Jesus. I'm committed. We're going to work this out together because that's what God calls us to do. Marriage cost. So where does all this kind of real talk leave us? You know, we're not talking this sentimental, man, man, I'm not in control of my body over mo- anymore. I, I, I don't get the rights to call the shots in my life unilaterally. Man, I have to keep my word. Where does this leave us? I want to say one thing to singles, and then I want to say one thing to marrieds here. So listen carefully as I wrap this up. Singles, marriage is not perfect. Don't overestimate it. Although marriage is certainly a gift, as we've seen, it is not without its cost. I think Paul's challenge here for singles is this. Don't make an idol out of marriage. A spouse or ceremony won't complete you. Only Christ can do that. And the good news is this. If you've trusted in Jesus, you already have a spouse and he loves you perfectly. If you are single, you do not have to wait until you get married to experience happily ever after. In fact, this was never the freight that marriage was intended to deliver. It's not as if all married people are walking walking around on cloud nine. That is a delusion. Marriage has its advantages and so does singleness. So if you are single today, yes, marriage is great. It's fantastic, but it's not Jesus. Don't overestimate marriage and make it think that it's going to fix you. It won't. Don't think marriage is Jesus Christ, the one who saves you and satisfies you. Marriage is a blessing, but so is singleness. And Jesus is more of a blessing than either of them. If you're married... Marriage is not perfect, but don't you underestimate it. For those of you who are married and have come to the realization that your spouse hasn't solved all your problems, that means you've been married more than five minutes. (laughs) Make sure that you do not underestimate what God wants to do in and through you through your marriage. Know your spouse is not perfect. Know your relationship is not perfect. And I hope you realize that you are not perfect. Two imperfect people came to that altar. But do you realize that God wants to use your imperfect marriage, your imperfect, uh, it's difficult to say, your imperfect marriage and your imperfect spouse to perfect you. God wants to use that union of sinners to start to drive sin out of your life. 
God is far more concerned about your holiness than he is about your happiness. God didn't give you that woman. God didn't give you that man just to make you happy. I hope they'll make you happy. I hope there are moments of unbridled joy in your marriage. I hope that is true. But that's not the fundamental reason they gave him, God gave him or her to you. God gave him or her to you so that you could become more like him. God is far more concerned about your holiness than he is about your happiness. And marriage is one of the crucibles on which God forms the holiness of his people. Both marriage and singleness are gifts in ways we expect, right? Like there's things about marriage and singleness that are obvious. We're like, man, that's a gift. And in ways we don't expect. Through the hardness of marriage and singleness, because of the work of Jesus, God is willing and able to meet you. Listen to these words from the book of Philippians. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. And if I could add, in singleness and in marriage, I have learned the secret of being content. And what is it? I, can, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. God is willing to meet you in the midst of your singleness. God is willing to meet you in the midst of your marriage and says to you, you can grow in your relationship with me because my spirit is present and at work. I sent my son to die on the cross and I made you single. I made you married so that I could grow you and change you and shape you and make you more like my son. Isn't it good news that whatever state you find yourself in, whether your marriage is a 10 right now or it's a 2. Whether you're single and content or you're single and you're struggling. Whether you're engaged or whether engagement has been broken off. Whatever state you find yourself in, because of the work of Jesus, this promise is true. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I can remain sexually pure in an impure world. I can be true to my spouse. I can serve my spouse through the marriage bed. I can grow in my leadership as a husband. I can grow in my submission as a wife. I can grow in our service as a family. I can learn to make Jesus my savior and my portion if I'm single. All of these things God is saying to you and I, I can do all things. No matter what my relationship status is on Facebook, through Christ who gives me strength. Jesus is with you in whatever state you find yourself in. Let me pray and then I just want to give you two very practical suggestions for the week that I hope you'll practice. Lord, we need you. As the worship team comes, Lord, we just cry out to you and we ask for your help. Lord, I pray for the singles at Gospel Hope Church. I pray that there would be a deep contentment in Jesus among those who are singles. I pray that they would not overestimate marriage and realize that it is Christ that is their savior, not a relationship. Lord, I pray for our marrieds. I pray that they would not underestimate marriage, but realize that marriage is a crucible in which you want to grow them in their faith and their knowledge of you. Lord, I pray gospel hope would be marked by messy, 
but grace-filled relationships. Lord, help us, help us, help us. Draw near to each one in this room. In Jesus' name we pray.